giant voice. The official podcast of the United States Navy's largest overseas installation, Commander Fleet Activities, Yokosuka. All the information you need to succeed as a forward deployed sailor in Japan. Each week, we tackle one topic and speak to experts who can answer some of your most frequently asked questions. This is the Giant Voice Podcast. Welcome to the Giant Voice, CFA's one and only official podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Cole, and today we have a great show for you with some very special guests. Today's topic is pretty hard-hitting and an important issue for the Navy. And since Suicide Prevention Month is right around the corner, we brought in some experts to talk about the topic. And without further ado, I'll let my guests introduce themselves. Uh, Chaplain Dave Kim, I'm the Command Chaplain for Fleet Activities Yokosuka. Hi, uh, Lieutenant Commander Olampai, Director of Mental Health for Naval Hospital Yokosuka, and the C-Phase Installation Director for Psychological Health. HM2 Coleman, I am one of the behavioral psych techs at NMRTC Yakuska. Well, thank you all for being here today. I'm, I'm excited to uh, be able to speak with you. I've been thinking about this for a couple weeks. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what is, uh, what, what, what is Suicide Prevention Month? I think it's a chance for us as a commander and us as a Navy to uh, kind of remind our sailors of the different resources that are available for them. I think it's it's a month that we can bring and raise awareness to uh, not only the uh, resources that are available for those who might be struggling with suicide um, and uh, suicidal thoughts, but also a chance for people to reflect and to uh, potentially mourn some of those that they've uh, lost to this, uh, to this um, I would call it an, almost an epidemic at this point. So um, a kind of a, a healing aspect, but also kind of a reminder of the, the vast array of different resources that we have available to help those that are struggling with this. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think um, reflection is definitely the right, the right word for it. Um, I think part of why we have months in general and in honor of certain any cause is to focus on the fact that it is not uh, the time to think about it. It's sort of in addition to our baseline, always thinking about these things, uh, taking a pause to wonder, are we thinking about it enough? How are we thinking about it? Are there things that we can add and inform the way or how do we reach more people? And I think that's kind of why it was wonderful that we brought in this podcast, a someone from chaplaincy, the religious ministry, who traditionally have been at the forefront of, of suicide prevention and counseling and therapy and mental health even before it was cool in the military. The chaplains are at the beginning doing that. And, and many people would see a chaplain much more or instead of seeing a mental health provider, uh, I can provide the, the medical and the uh, psychology um, of the sort of lay opinion. That said, a lot of the work that I do is very much informed by common value, focus on values and purpose and meaning that the chaplains focus on. And we also brought um, HM2 Coleman here uh, because we understand that enlisted sailors can help enlisted sailors. She's also a, I hope I'm not disclosing too much for you, a spouse of a sailor assigned to a ship. And so we want to make sure that when we take this month, we take this 360 view that includes uh, all voices and also all perspectives to reach as many people as we can from this. Mm -hmm. HM2. Yes, sir, I totally agree. I think it's important to, for a suicide prevention month, to not just think about it and reflect on it, but to also let everyone know this is the time to talk about it, um, to let everyone know that 
talking about it, it can be uncomfortable, but it needs to be addressed and talked about, um, especially in our military community. Um, there's been a cliche with mental health, and over the last couple of years, years because of COVID, um, I'm glad to see the stigma kind of coming down and everyone's willing to talk about it and get the help they need before it even reached that point. And to talk about the signs and symptoms before we reach that point of someone thinking about or planning or having intent to uh, kill themselves. So I think this is an important time to talk about it and open that conversation. So let's talk about stigma. That was gonna be my next question. Um, I guess let's, let's, let's kind of want, I mean, um, I kind of wonder where the stigma, obviously, you know, we can date this back to World War II with shell shock and everything. Where did the stigma uh, you think originate from? I think uh, it there's several different ways that um, or it's contributors to that. I think part of it is in the military um, where you have a, a traditionally a male-dominated culture where uh, it's about strength, it's about resilience, it's uh, asking for help of any sort is, is kind of frowned upon. Um, so uh, the idea of, of showing weakness might be something that was uh, frowned upon by the command as well as by individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, marines. Um, but also I think culturally, Suicide is something that, like many things, may have just been seen as uh, just a taboo subject in general. In Safe Talk, we talk about um, how certain subjects like domestic violence used to be just something you don't really ask about. It was not your business, right? And so someone's personal struggles, it's their business. Uh, let them work it out. It's not something that uh, has traditionally been something that we ask about. Um, but trying to break those barriers and trying to get those subjects out in the open more um, is, is one step on the path to, to healing for as a as a community as a society yeah uh, I think part of where stigma probably comes from uh, and what gets reinforced and I is that um, human beings are, are inherently social creatures and social animals right and I think that part of that comes from when I think about who do I want on my team or who would want me on their team we probably often think about gosh People would probably want, I would want, someone who's really strong, someone capable, who's dependable, someone who has it together, someone who could help me out. And I think there's an assumption or a thought, incorrectly, that if someone has any form of sort of mental illness or is not right, they may not be kind of dependable, reliable, uh, or, or willing to do things. And I think that kind of reinforces the stigma. And especially when you bring it into the military context, where a lot of the work that we do is, is inherently training for life and death uh, situations, um, there's a concern of why would somebody trust me if there's something wrong with me? And I think that is especially when on top of uh, the fundamental problem with a lot of mental illness and mental health concerns is uh, an insight problem of not being kind enough to myself, not being compassionate to myself, and sort of just not seeing myself with enough grace or as much grace as I would give someone else who had the same thing. Somehow, when I'm suffering, when I'm bad, it's not a good thing, it's not okay, no one wants to help me, even though that person will just say in the next sentence, but if it was somebody else and my buddy doing it, I would totally help them and, and not judge them. So I think the stigma is, is sort of that uh, indoctrinated thing, and I think that's why we focus a lot on talking about mental health, is to help clarify the assumptions that we kind of just walk past one another on a daily basis with, um, and, and just don't talk about. 
out and that perpetuates it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I want to touch on that Chap said is weakness. Um, a lot of times that I hear um, while being at the mental health clinic is a lot of people are afraid of showing vulnerability um, and weakness. And when me and H and Two Chambers um, run our groups um, at the mental health clinic, we always touch on that you're not weak. Um, nothing's wrong with you. You're not broken. That you're just in a time of need right now and that you need help. And it's nothing wrong with that. You shouldn't be afraid to ask for help. You shouldn't be ashamed. And I think that's where a lot of the stigma stems from, too, that uh, a lot of our uh, sailors, soldiers, airmen, Marines, they want to stay strong. They want to be strong for their brothers and sisters. But being the strong one all the time, that's a lot of burden to put on yourself. So it's just spreading that it's okay to ask for help and that you're not weak okay yeah so I, you know I, I i wanted to you know this is one of the, the one of the things that i wanted to kind of ask so go back to a story when i was active duty and i had a supervisor who was uh not the most supportive guy and i was kind of in a dark place and um his response to uh suicide was well if they do it then they kind of deserve it um how would a junior anybody officer enlisted how would they if they feel like they're not getting their support from their immediate chain of command how would they have the courage to go talk to somebody i think the first thing is knowing who to go outside of your chain of command um, we always tell people at the clinic that not everyone is safe and so you need to know who is safe who you can disclose stuff to. Um, and having someone outside of your chain of command is important. Um, knowing your resources is important. Knowing where to go if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel safe with yourself, go to the ER, take that step. It's okay to advocate for yourself. Um, we always tell people that no one's gonna show up for you like you. So make sure to take those steps for you and advocate your, for yourself and know that, no, I need help. I'm glad you touched on that. I really, you know, because that's 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 probably on the forefront of some people's minds. So, yeah, I think definitely uh, support from the chain of command is is welcome. Um, but you know, different people have different experiences. They have different uh, biases, and so um, you know, being aware that you have other resources. Again, uh, most of the ships now have chaplains, uh, and uh, definitely corpsmen. The medical department is, is going to be your, your first line of defense. And so, uh, but it comes down to relationships, right? Um, if, you, like HMT said, you have to feel safe. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, months like this, or just different discussions, different opportunities we have to connect, uh, help people feel safe enough to kind of come forward, not just for themselves, but we really need uh, sailors to come forward for each other, too, and to kind of look out for each other and know when to get help for their shipmates who may not be in a in a place where they're able to do self-aid so we kind of rely on buddy aid to, to, uh, to help each other out so um, and again there are multiple avenues even on a ship alone and unafraid out in the middle of the South China Sea to to reach out um, so we just want to make people not just aware but um, safe enough to to reach out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have two sort of two additional thoughts, and I certainly agree with those. I'd say one certainly be remiss if I did not mention that this was kind of the the genesis or the root of this uh, the Brandon Act we always hear about that was recently passed and implemented throughout the Navy, which there's been a lot of talk about it and a lot of misconceptions. But essentially, what the Brandon Act said is if one goes to a E5 or above, a supervisor, and they say I need a mental health thing, that person is supposed to uh, help them get to mental health with with very little to no questions asked. Make sure they get an appointment and now it's a leadership responsibility um 
to do that. Uh, so I think that, that that is certainly the formal answer, and certainly I think the step forward, and certainly something the Navy supports. Uh, but to your point, you know, I think one might say, well, my gosh, wasn't your leadership supposed to do that when you were back in Europe? Weren't they supposed to do that just like they were supposed to do this? And I think that's where HM2 and chaplains uh, comments are very uh, important to understand, and I think on your what I heard is on your your CFA, on the CFA website now they do have the list of resources we've created, which again uh, on that it breaks it down to what are the various resources. Um, as I mentioned, I'm the installation director for psychological health, and so part of that role is beyond the director of mental health for the hospital. It's everyone sort of on the installation. So civilians, contractors, how do I reconcile the resources that are available to everyone and kind of put them in a way so that everyone is suffering? Because everyone on this base was literally brought here from the United States, uh, which probably means they're all important for something, whether or not they recognize it. Uh, and so to do that, that's why we have this resource page that is on, your, on, the, on the site now, which essentially breaks down the fleet and family, the MFLAC services, definitely the chaplain duty number is on there, and the hospital's on there. Uh, if I may, the second part that I think about that you remind me of um, is uh, something that when I was, especially with the Marine Corps, uh, would come up pretty often. When I would see, especially, particularly the at this point, it was the late 2010s, and it was especially when I'd see the, the E6s and the E7s who, there's a whole unique stigma when you're in leadership and seeking mental health uh, that I think comes up. And a lot of those guys, partly, they, I think they did were honest when they're saying, well, the reason I never got help is I wanted my junior guys to get it. Got it, but who's in charge of those junior guys and who's really contributing to those junior guys' quality of life but you? And, and, and particularly when we talk about them and PTSD, not that you have to be Marine to have PTSD, people come into the military with PTSD from, from adverse life experiences. Uh, and basically one way that I've kind of got the ones that are the many who are on the fence to talk about it, as I said, you know better than I that if anyone is judging you for having mental health issues or mental health concerns, you have the medals and, you know, or evaluations to prove it. If someone's judging you uh, for seeking mental health, it typically means one of two things. Either one, that person is in denial about their own mental health concerns, in which case they're trying to shut you down because if you don't talk about it, they don't have to think about what's going on in their mind, their hearts, their homes. Or two, if they're judging you based on what you've experienced in life, whether it was combat, whether it was the childhood you've been through, then the reason they're doing it is because they haven't been anywhere and they haven't experienced it, and they can't fathom that there's anything like that. So I guess, in a sense, have grace for them, that they don't, the same grace they don't have for you, but recognize if someone's making you feel bad about mental health things, and particularly getting mental health, it's probably because they're in denial about their own concerns, or two, they, lucky for them, have not had those experiences that have done that to them. Um, because anyone who's been anywhere or done anything knows that while we may not all be suicidal, we may not all have PTSD, those of us who have been through difficult things in life can easily see how someone could. Absolutely. No, thank you. Yeah, no, that that's definitely, uh, and that, I wanted from, um, from that, I wanted to talk to you about, you, you had already mentioned uh, the resources. Um, so first, how can sailors be aware of their resources, you know, resource awareness and, and to know where can they go to see what resources they have available. Sure. So one, I guess the, the I guess the CFA website does post this, and it's two forms. One is literally a chart, kind of boring, but that one literally has the phone numbers, who's available uh, for 
um, you know, who is available for uh, for them based on who the listener is in general, right? Because again, what I wanted to emphasize is that uh, while there are certain services we cannot provide, say for example, in the hospital for non-active duty, non-dependents, we still care about our contractors and civilians. And so that's one resource where it has literally, based on the category you are, all the things that are taken, but it also includes uh, that. So one, always gonna be the hospital is, is, is gonna be the nuclear option. Uh, it's gonna be the most extreme option, but we'd rather have you do that than anything else. Uh, there's also a roadmap that should come in that file. And that roadmap kind of walks you through uh, where you are on the continuum in that if it is something that is, say, I'm not that concerned, it's just difficult, I just don't want to get out of hand, that's definitely a role where chaplain counseling uh, can begin. Definitely chaplain counseling can even go well beyond that. But also where MFLAX, the Military Family Life Counselors, of which their phone numbers are readily available. What's nice about the Military Family Life Counselors is that, one, I'd say what's nice about them is that they have the flexibility to meet you um, in different Parts. So you're not going to an office. If you're worried about the stigma, it's this person who will meet you on a park bench somewhere at a designated time and will talk to you and is available kind of at different hours that you negotiate with them. And so that flexibility is, is nice and an entree to things. Um, what other people also like about it, I tend to not uh, think this is a good thing about them, but, but certainly I can see how some would. They do not document in anyone's medical record or service record, so to the extent that is an issue. For me, the reason I don't think that's a good thing is I think that that just perpetuates stigma um, because I think it's important for the medical providers to know that. Uh, Fleet and Family is also another something along that line, which they do have a dedicated office, but they have counseling services as well, which you can call. And then Military One Source is, a, is an online option or a virtual option or a telephone option you can do. And then your medical provider. I think one thing that's kind of shocking when you make it into the medical side is you see it's not that we are abs, there are no resources available as much as Oh my gosh, there are so many different resources that are available. It's almost like a paradox of choice of not knowing where to start. But the short answer is if you're a sailor, talk to your medical providers, whether that's your IDC on a ship or if that's the hospital, they definitely can point you in that direction. Uh, they can do that. If you're a waterfront sailor on one of our cruisers and destroyers, the whole Desron 15 cruisers and destroyers of Surf Pack, they literally have a social worker and a psychiatrist and a behavioral health technician just for them. No other person on this base can see those three providers uh, except the people that belong to the cruisers and destroyers. The Reagan has a psychologist on a ship and now that they're going underway, the, the standard practice now is they'll literally have two mental health providers on the Reagan. Um, so you'll have that. For shore duty, you come to us in the hospital and we'll, we'll help you out. Um, so I uh, wanna talk about preventative maintenance. What do you recommend for preventative maintenance when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention? Uh, again, that's a, it's a great question. I think, um, how do you prevent this is by living life fully, right? So it's uh, there's, we can see it as a problem to avoid or, or what can we do to help sailors and uh, their families live life fully? And so uh, that comes down to a lot of personal choices we make, uh, but also as a culture, uh, kind of emphasizing time with family, time at home, time for ourselves. And so there's a few things we can do. Again, I I always joke with my sailors uh, in the chapel how I want to be a single sailor because uh, there's so many single sailor programs that look look great and, uh, and uh, so many opportunities to see Japan. And 
taking advantage of those, of those MWR opportunities and the fact that um, we are in a unique situation being out here and, and living in Japan. Um, obviously, uh, at the chapel, we, we allow people a time and space to go deeper into elements of faith uh, that um, gives purpose value, uh, meaning to, to life that, that can definitely act as uh, it, it acts as a um, kind of a, a buffer for some of these uh, some of these big questions that uh, people are, are wrestling with when, they, when they're having suicidal thoughts. Um, and also it, it provides an element of community. Again, peop, uh, one of the uh, biggest contributors to, to having suicidal thoughts is, is a feeling of isolation, feeling alone, and not feeling like you matter. And a community, finding community in, in all different sorts of places, especially communities of faith, but uh, even communities of, of interest, um, whether it be a running club, a biking club, or something like that, feeling like you belong, um, those are definitely things that, that can be seen as preventative measures. Um, and then, again, it's just uh, having a culture in, in our commands that, that uh, emphasize that we work hard together, but we also um, take advantage of and uh, emphasize the importance of, of downtime mm-hmm. and having a time to, to reset, take a knee, and to see that as not, um, again, everyone's got uh, schedules that they have to meet and, and uh I'm sure again the adage is that a ship in port is not doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be out at sea. But um, just like you take care of your ship, you maintain it. We got to do that with our sailors and our families as well. Um, I think one of the important things is to realize that it's okay to pour into other people's, but it's just as important as to pour into yourself. And the way to do that is I'm a big advocate for self-care. I think it's very important to practice that with yourself. Um, Some things that you can do, um, like Chaps mentioned, is like live life to the fullest. Go out and find programs that get you out of your room, out of your barracks. Um, I know the cliche things is like listen to music, journal, go on walks, but those things could add value to your life and give you a space where you can have time for yourself, give you a moment to breathe, which is practicing mindfulness um, and learning the skills and coming to some of these resources where you can learn skills that you can implement in your life. Um, What we always tell people is that at mental health and with chaplains, we can give you the tools, we can talk all day, but you have to be able to implement them in your life. Um, We don't have a magic wand, we don't have a magic button, um, but we can show you the way that you can practice self-care for yourself and pour into yourself. Um, I think it's important to know that uh, it's okay to not just wait for the weekend. Um, Try to do things within your week. Give yourself a moment for yourself. Um, Try to find things. Um, Like I didn't know we had a roller derby team um, (laughs) that meets in a Kago and there's a dance studio right outside of the base that there are things outside of the haunch that you can do to decompress and have fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Another thing that I'll plug is our our credo ministry here. Um, So uh, not Obviously, I think they're known for marriage enrichment retreats and uh, having free retreats that couples can go on um, where they can reconnect with each other. I think those are very important, not just uh, before and after a deployment, but just in general. Um, I think uh, that's always going to be time well spent. And again, it's free. Um, Transportation is even provided for these resources, uh, for these retreats. But they also offer personal resiliency retreats. So for sailors that just want to get away and kind of just work on themselves, work on um, their own uh, goals, work on um, 
how they can uh, reflect and how they can practice mindfulness, all different things that are, are done on a personal level, those kinds of retreats are available as well. And so uh, we definitely want to make sure that uh, you're aware of our creator retreats and Chaplain Dan Clark and Chaplain Ryan Messer over there um, are very eager to, to roll out um, a, a set of retreats and programs that will help uh, our families as well as our single sailors in trying to live life fully. Yeah, I, I actually I'm glad you mentioned that, Chaplain, because actually the, the we've met with uh, Congress Clark and Tenet Mezer, and they, they are now part of our DMA, Direct Mental Health family. Um, in fact, I had them come to our All Providers meeting because we are planning to, again, my role as the Installation Director of Psychological Health is to sort of work to transcend silos as much as possible of what things were. And I think that's something that we recognized uh, across the board independently is that there was this program and there was some territoriality about it. And so we don't talk about those things. But literally, we've been talking to them about how we can leverage that with, for example, SARP. And one of the things we're thinking for the next fiscal year is one of our levels of SARP is literally a three-week program. And part of that on the weekend is finding a sober activity. And in my sense, what I'm trying to see if they can accommodate, and they seem very excited to accommodate, is where we give the attendees of the SARP program uh, you know, training and treatment obviously during the week, but maybe during that second weekend, making that into a creator retreat where they can be taken away for these personal resiliency things where they can kind of learn about sober living, sober activities, things that they can do that don't involve alcohol. Um, to go to your point about what is a preventive maintenance, and I think that kind of touches on the concept of, I don't know if you're gonna get to it, uh, things that we can do for prevention ideally. And I always have a hard time talking about suicide prevention because I found that the leaders that really care are the ones who take that sometimes too literally in that, and, and I think the mental health field is, is kind of somewhat uh, to, to blame in this in to think that there is, as HM2 mentioned, some magic wand, some way of knowing if I followed an algorithm, then that's gonna prevent deaths by suicide. And unfortunately, the ones, the leaders that really care uh, I find need to learn to give themselves more grace because what happens to them oftentimes is they will have a death in their unit and they'll say, oh my gosh, but there's these risk factors and there's this checklist I was supposed to do. What did I do wrong? Because I think in most things, that's what it is. And I think when we talk about high reliability organizations and this kind of Six Sigma stuff, uh, that definitely be, uh, while I don't agree with it, consistent with sort of that logic that there's a formula. But one of the issues with that makes mental health so difficult uh, compared to my other friends in, in the house of medicine is that people are not at, don't obey the laws of physics the way aircrafts do. And so thinking we can just apply, you know, gravity is gravity no matter what, physics can be physics no matter what. Human beings have emotions and mindsets and moods that change from time to time. And so while I, I, I kind of, I am a bit heretical in the mental health thing by saying, well, the suicide prevention, I think it's mitigation. I understand the sentiment of reducing it. What I would say is probably the best preventive maintenance is, and again, going a bit off script, because you can read through lots of reports. I'll give you all these different risk factors. But what starts to happen is you start to realize, my gosh, these are so many risk factors. I think of literally six things. And I think that that's easy for people to understand six things to keep in mind and to make it very simple. Three of them start with B and three of them start with I. And the more we can improve those three Bs and three Is, I think the better off we all will be. And so the, the Bs would be starting off with burdensomeness, belonging, and barriers. So, you know, if someone is there and they feel like they don't, you know, even especially when you think about substance use, which is a 
uh, ties into a lot of these, right? Uh, a, 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 one of my favorite axioms in, in addiction psychiatry, which is what I have, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and one of my favorite axioms is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? And that's where we think about that first one, the sense of belonging. You know, if I have a group and they're doing sober stuff and I'm enjoying them and I feel part of this team, it can reduce the likelihood that I'll want to not be alive. I want to participate with these people. The more we isolate someone, ostracize them, um, cut off connections to people they like, they care about, the higher the risk. Uh, burdensomeness. Okay, got it. Maybe I don't belong, but I'm pulling my weight. I can't wait to see my family. When I get back into port, things are going to be okay. Great. But when it starts to be, not so much, I want to die to be selfish, definitely not that. I don't want to die because I feel like I deserve it. It's more of I'm dragging the team down. People are better off without me. And that's one of the kind of errors that happens in the minds of a lot of people who uh, attempt suicide. I don't know what the ones who die by suicide think, but the ones who attempt that, that's kind of the mindset they have. That I wasn't doing this so much for me, yes, maybe to end the pain, but also a big part of it was I thought that the team would be better off. I thought I was dragging everybody down. I thought my family would be better off without them. And I can tell you very much that that is definitely not the case if you're to ask the family members. So, the more belonging, burdensomeness, and barriers. This is where a benefit that we actually have in Japan, believe it or not. Because yeah. while Japan makes us feel isolated, you know, one way I describe Japan to somebody is that, and being military in Japan for somebody, is it is literally the first time in people's lives that they can remember what it's like to be illiterate. If you're stationed in Italy, if you're stationed in, in, in Spain, sure, you may not speak those languages, but you can read the road signs. You can look that up in the guidebook and know exactly where you are. Those people have a close enough language to English that they're used to, you can figure it out and they accommodate that. In Japan, it's a whole different ball game and I don't think people appreciate that enough. They appreciate it when I do the tourist thing for two weeks, oh my gosh, but when you live here and oh my gosh, I am different than everybody else. It is clear that I'm different than everybody else. For some, it's the first time they feel like an other. For others who've grown up feeling like an other in the United States, it's almost a re-traumatizing. Oh my God, I joined the military to get away from that. And now this is even further compounded in another group that's that's marginalizing me in a marginalized group. So I think that's the sense where, where sort of belonging comes in. But one of the benefits of being in Japan is barriers. The harder it is to have means or access to things to die by suicide. In the United States, if we were having this conversation, uh, I would have spent probably 50% of the conversation talking about stowing your weapons away, not having access to guns, mm -hmm. or even if you have access to guns, that's a hot button topic, but at least don't keep your gun loaded. And uh, you know, if it's not okay, you can give it to somebody else and the access to lethal means. We still have that in Japan, jumping off buildings and things like that, but the barriers. And the more someone tries to find ways to do it and overcome, so part of why the barriers is important and part of why we say a past suicide attempt is so important is that there's a human instinct of self-preservation. And no one goes from I'm fine to I die by suicide. There's often this long, circuitous road of ebbs and flows of emotion and desire and, and interest in doing it. And what a past suicide tells us, attempt tells us, is that this person has actually gotten the activation energy to overcome that instinct for self-preservation. And that's why barriers, that's a big concern because that's a low barrier. So belonging, burdensome barriers, and the three are intoler eyes are intolerable. Sure, I feel like I'm burdened. Yeah, I don't belong. They don't like me here. They don't want me here. Yeah, I could kill myself. But you know what? I can take it. It's not that bad. Great. But the more it's, they're hazing me, they're judging me, this is even more painful, the more likely. Mm -hmm. Interminable which is never gonna end. Sure, 
yeah, it's terrible. I don't like it. I don't belong. All those other things. But the deployment's going to be ending in a week, right? But then when you start getting the extension and the, thir the third extension of the deployment of the underway, where I feel like they're just fooling us every single time. I don't even like lobster or steak right now because it reminds me of something that's going to come. So the more I feel like there's, this isn't going to go on forever. And the last one is inescapable. If they could come up with a way to not feel like a burden, to feel like they belong, to you know make the pain less, or, oh, there's a way out, then, yeah, I'll do that. But largely what happened is that it's the last thing that I have. Um, not that too much, but I think that goes to how we frame things in that most people come to mental health with what I call the dead person goals of I don't want to feel bad, I don't want to feel sad, I don't want to feel upset, I don't want to feel down, which are reasonable reasons that people want to seek help and treatment and therapy. And definitely you could should come to therapy if what you find is this overwhelming sense of feeling down, sad, and anxious. But part of our goal in the mental health clinic and therapy in general is to help somebody move from these dead person goals. They're called dead person goals because you could imagine a corpse would not feel anxious, not feel down, not feel sad, not feel upset. And it's kind of how, yeah, and it's exactly how when someone's going through their COAs of how do I do that, maybe not one, two, but maybe number seven or eight on the list when the others have failed would be, gosh, I guess I'll do that so I don't feel the pain. pain. So part of what therapy should be, and I encourage people when they think about going to therapy, gosh, do I just have to share about my childhood and whatnot? Child is important. But part of what therapy is about is transforming things from those goals of the dead person goals that a dead person can do to life worth living goals. What does a rich and meaningful life look like for you? Mm -hmm. And the reason I encourage everyone to bring that and ask that in mind, and if your therapist can't help you or has no idea how to do that for you, then you probably shouldn't be seeing the therapist. But the reason that is, is one, those life worth living goals, Three, four years from now, if this is successful, if I get my money's worth in therapy, what does my look, life look like? How am I treating myself? How am I treating others? How am I handling situations like the one I'm in right now? What do I want that to look like as the director, or the producer of the movie of my life, or the author of my life? What does that look like? And that's actually useful, and I think your therapist would like that, or your chaplain's prize, because if you give me a target to help you get to, that is much easier than you know navigating by negation. You don't go to trip with your family and they see your kids say, I don't want to go east, I don't want to go south, I don't want to go west. There's a whole lot of north to complain about. But when you say, I want to go to Disney Sea, it's very easy for your kid to know, are we on the right track or not? Am I getting there or not? And it's much easier for your therapist to say, oh, okay, that's the big concern for him. Great, let's do those things that matter most to you. Because I can think of so many things that help with suicide prevention, but what matters is what matters to the individual person. And so that's why that's important. I wanted to touch on the epidemic um, and I don't want to get, you know, too deep in the weeds about it, but um, are you, so you talked about your your um, three B's, three I's. Mm -hmm. Do you see those as uh, partial reasons for uh, the epidemic and suicides in the Navy? I do, I do. And when I was my my first job out of training was the developing the embedded mental health program in Sasebo and the ships in Sasebo. The only the only psychiatrist uh, there for those ships. And what I quickly realized is. I'm not anti-social media. I think that it's a very good thing uh, for most people. And I think that's also a hard thing about mental health is there are a lot of things which are no absolutes. Um, but I mentioned that because what I found for a lot of people is that what things like Instagram or Facebook would do or what it's done, what made that different than say the people in Vietnam or the people in Desert Storm or the Gulf Wars was that it transformed FOMO, the fear of missing out into a false knowledge of missing out. 
because when I see my feed and I see all my buddies back home, go, the, I see the five minute segments of their week, of them going at this party, oh, them getting this car, them doing that great thing, and it's friend after friend after friend, five minute segment of their week, I get the false impression that that is literally what everyone's doing 24-7 back in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel unconnected. I don't feel a part of that. Uh, I feel like, oh my God, why did I do this? I feel miserable. When you don't see the 95% of the day where they're on their, their couch, you know, in their underwear, like picking their belly button, right? You don't see that. <laughs> you see the false picture of the person because you're, you're taking those pictures too, right? You're waiting to get into port and they're doing all these great, you know, you know, crushing it, you know, look keep at me 100. Fuji. Yeah, look at me in Mount Fuji, uh, given that false impression. And so I think what, face, what influence media has done in a way is it's helped facilitate that. Now, again, it can help also bring connection, but that's also why I think it's worth being mindful of that. Uh, I think it also has led to, I don't have to talk to her if I have this phone in my, mm -hmm. and so we don't talk to one another very much. And if we don't talk to one another much, then I'm stuck with saying, this is what a perfect life looks like, or this is what life should look like on my food scroll. And if I know there's something wrong with me, I definitely don't want her to know there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. So I'll just continue to scroll and hope my life gets better. And while hoping HM2 never finds out. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's symbolism for that would be, you know, I, I was walking and scrolling through Instagram one time, nearly walked into a tree, and <laughs> I couldn't see my own destruction in front of me. Yeah, not connected to the physical world. I'd say that, you know, not that I'm advocating this, but there's a lot of adult fighters who would say, in World War, at the end of World War II, when people were coming back on those boats, that was a time of healing. That's a lot of time where we started to open up one another. There was impromptu group therapy. There was connection. There were religious services. There were all of us who had this shared experience, and we were with one another, uh, and we got had that time to process. Whereas now, we just fly back and go separate ways mm -hmm. with surrounded by our loved ones, and we're happy to see them, mm -hmm. but we know they have no idea and can't fathom what we've been through, what it was like. Mm -hmm. And they probably don't want to hear all the times I was sad and down on the ship in birthing, you know, they don't want to hear about that, you know, and I don't want to tell them about that because I'll just be complaining because I have this, I think they have this image of me and if I can't share the, and I don't want to wreck that image and now I feel even more like I have to put up this facade. Yeah. I think uh, Doc talked about um, kind of the, the, challenge of actually connection, ironically, in a, in a much more connected world, right? And so I think that that's a big contributor to to this epidemic. But um, I think one of a, one of my colleagues mentioned that uh, he believes that suicide at its core is a is a spiritual problem. Because even as psychology describes, again, it's not religious, it's spiritual, in that I think there's a lot of definitions for spiritual as being about meaning, purpose, and values. And those are the questions that are really not being answered and, and therefore can lead someone to that choice. And I think um, it's a bigger challenge now uh, more than before of having some sort of framework, whether it be a religious framework or not, that provides meaning, purpose, and values for somebody. Um, there's, a, again, I think a crippling number of options that are out there. Um, people don't have a, a foundation 
that they may have been given by their by their families or by their childhood or what have you, uh, that is at least some sort of default position about where they fit into this world, a, a worldview to look at. Um, I think before people might have uh, a certain worldview that was given to them by by their family that they go to college or they, they, they go out into the real world and that gets challenged and, and kind of teased out. But I think more and more so people are coming into the Navy with without really a, a worldview that's very well defined. And so so when they hit trauma, when they hit a difficulty, um, it's, mu- it's much more difficult to process. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, with that, um, that lack of identity, con- uh, combined with a lack of connectedness or inability to connect, I think uh, can just easily, more, much more easily lead someone to, uh, to some conclusions that may have been COA 7 before, but now it's more COA 2 or 3. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, before the internet or before these things, if I'd see Agent Every Day, I am referencing what normal is based on the people I'm around and the reality warts and all. When I rely on what I see on my social media as my reference point, my anchor mentally for reality, uh, how can I ever think I could match up with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, social media plays a big part, um, especially now. Um, you have TikTok where you have people saying, put your five fingers up, or if, if you do, if you put all your hand, five fingers down, then you have ADHD, or you have anxiety, or you have depression. So now you have social media trying to diagnose you, and so instead of going to someone for help, you're like, I can just figure out what's wrong with me on TikTok, or I can just figure out what's wrong with me on Instagram. Um, and you have to kind of disconnect from from that um, and come back into reality. Um, I think Sarah made a good point when we talk about when um, our service members used to fly back and have that time to decompress and talk to each other because those are the only people who know what went on, what they went through. Um, and for our shipboard sailors, um, they're the only ones that know what goes on on those deployments, the disappointment of not being able to go back into port or having to extend. Um, when they come home, uh, a lot of the times they're still in that mentality I know, like my husband, uh, my uh, husband's on the ship, and um, I noticed one day he was still sleeping, like he was on the rack, like he was just stand still like a board, like still sleeping like he was in a rack, and I couldn't understand it. I was like, why are you sleeping like that? Like, why are you so stiff? And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm used to it, and I was, I thought it was weird, but then I had to realize that that was his life for two months (laughs) and I've never been on the ship so I don't know what that looks like and so when he comes back home from his deployments are underway I make sure that he does have that time with his sailors so that they can go out to eat they can go and get yakuniku um, by the mall and have that time to decompress with them and like talk about it and then also provide a safe space for him to come talk to me Um, and even though I don't know and I wasn't there at least I can show him that hey I wasn't there, but I, I'm here to support you. I'm here to hear you out. Um, if you don't have the time to talk to them, that you can at least talk to me. And I think one of the unique challenges of Seven Fleet is that um, people are in and out all the time. Mm-hmm. And even on the carrier, um, uh, again, we, we would uh, reflect on the fact that if a carrier was coming from San Diego, uh, they had several days, if not weeks, for the transit back, and that kind of what we're talking about, uh, Doc, for World War II, is a time to reconnect, right? Um, it's a time to disconnect from 
the, the deployment experience to some extent. You're still on the ship, but mm-hmm. but to reconnect and to start thinking about home. Whereas here in Seventh Fleet, um, you're just pulling back into port because you're so close to your deployment location. It takes mm-hmm. a few days, and then especially with some of these small boys, you're going back out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really can't disconnect completely, and I think uh, that's one of the challenges. But also, I think um, the in addition to decompressing and, and disconnecting, uh, as important as that is, it's important to find something that you're reconnecting with. Yeah. And that's the, that's the important thing. And, and uh, that might be kind of where it's a bit more challenging of re- what do I reconnect with? Uh, and whether in terms of a framework, in terms of a worldview. And again, this is where I would, I would uh, challenge us to, to think through, hey, um, again, if you have a faith community, if you have a faith background, a lot of these have been in place for hundreds, if not thousands of years, mm-hmm. something that's bigger than ourselves, something that's bigger than our own experience. Uh, some people find meaning and purpose in being in the Navy, being in the Marines, right? I think mm-hmm. we have, there's, I always lament about how uh, things are different in the Navy than the Marine Corps, but because of the strong kind of culture in the Marine Corps, that's something that people find connection with, right? And it's something bigger than themselves that they can connect with. And so um, it's something that uh, can be done uh, on, a, on a command level as well. I think I've seen it done well. But anything that uh, we, I th- we need to look not just at what we need to disconnect from, but what we need to connect with. And I think the, the deeper those roots go, um, the longer the traditions have been, I think it, it, the bigger it is outside of ourselves, I think the, the more helpful they can be. Okay. Is there anything else you all want to add? Um, I'd say that I guess I guess recapitulating back to the 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 notion that we take September out to think about events, and I guess maybe we want to talk about the events mm-hmm. before we end uh, as something we need to do in addition to the work we do uh, around. Uh, around the year, uh, every day that we have to do, uh, it's a it's a vigilance thing. I think that I'd be remiss also if I did not mention that, and we don't probably have time to go into the role that substance use plays into this. Uh, now, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not here to say that nobody should ever drink, and I'm not trying to ban alcohol. But I think when we think about, gosh, this this pattern that I think more that senior leaders probably see, or people have been around a while seeing this pattern where. We traditionally have treated substance use like something completely different from mental health, as if like, oh, they just drank out of the blue. Uh, and oftentimes that's not the case, right? And then there's often this pattern, which I think even junior sailors see in their, their, their peers or themselves, where it is the substance use for maybe the feelings of emotion lead to bad decisions. <laughs> that leads to feeling bad because now there are consequences about that. And then that starts playing into the burdensomeness, belonging, what am I going to do? Oh, it's intolerable. I can't deny the fact that I'm getting in this trouble. Like, that's not, a, that's not false. And so I think about that. I think where I am now, I would not have said this maybe like a decade ago because I was definitely a different person a decade ago. I would say for now, for me, what I realized that helped me kind of not drink is I realized that, and, and thank God there was not a lot of like social media back when I was, you know, in my 20s. Uh, it was, if I were to go out today, there's probably, you know, 98% chance it would be great, it would be fine, it would be a fun time. But as I started to reflect, mainly because I was in addiction psychiatry fellowship where I was around a lot of people who really needed help, that, oh my God, but by the grace of God, those 2% add up over time. <laughs> you know, 98% chance it's gonna be fine. But over time, I realized, oh my God, there's 
Yeah, those 2% events uh, start to take a toll. But I think largely that, that plays into this, not just in terms of the sailor who does something that he regrets or she regrets, but also the fact that we see that in not just the perpetrators of abuse and assault when they're drinking, but the victims of assault and abuse when they're drinking. Uh, and so I'd say that uh, you know, my, my SARP department head would, would be very upset with me if I didn't plug that because now with the newest change in the SARP policy, the lower levels of SARP treatment do not need to be reported to commands or DAPAs. And so what I tell the, you know, E6s and E7s who are on the fence about getting treatment is going to ruin my career. What I tell the E3s or 4s is you better go through this treatment now as an E3, E4 because you don't want to have to go through this as an E5 or 6. If you're an E5 or 6 or 7, I'd say, well, you probably should get this treatment now. And this could be part of, again, that arc of your life, that story where you turn things around because you're clearly here because most likely you already got in trouble. Otherwise, you typically wouldn't come. <laughs> And the answer isn't whether or not, oh my gosh, I got in trouble. Let's not dwell on that. Let's dwell on how do you not get in trouble again? And that's by getting the adequate treatment, by being honest with your reporting, getting the treatment for that. But again, finding purpose and meaning and things to look forward to that are holistic, which is why we're involving Credo in our treatment. Coleman, you have events. Yes. So the suicide prevention teams around CFA is coming together on uh, the 22nd of September to do a walk of remembrance. Um, we will start at Berkey Field um, and then end up in Casano Park. Um, and every 22 minutes, we'll be walking around Berkey Field um, to recognize uh, the people who have died by suicide. Um, that will be at 1,400 to about 1,700, 1,800 as a whole uh, event event um, to come out. We're also doing things at the hospital to show support as well. So uh, I guess two things that I just wanted to kind of bring up real quick. Um, I think one of the things that I really continually try to um, uh, try to emphasize when we're talking about mental health is uh, I think people see mental health and they see mental illness, right? They, they see a label and that's where the stigma comes in. Whereas you know, I'm still, I'm still recovering from the trauma of seeing uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers go down with an Achilles injury because I'm a Jets fan, right? Mm -hmm. But that's an injury, right? It's something that it's not an illness. It's something that, for that particular time, and unfortunately for the rest of the season, he's going to be out, right? And so, it, but it's something that you recover from, and it's something that you work through, and there's no stigma attached to an injury. I want us to get to that point with with mental health as well, um, especially with suicide prevention. This is not something that, that defines you. This is something that you're going through right now. So let's unpack that and let's get someone the help they need, help them get the, get, get the um, treatment they need and then get them back out there, get, bring them back onto the team, just as we would for a physical sports injury. Um, the other thing I wanna emphasize is that, again, when we talk about uh, the prevention for suicide uh, is is living life fully. That's something everyone can contribute to. It's not something that is is limited to uh, you know, uh, midflix or or chaplains or mental mental health professionals. It's it's something that everyone does. And so whether it's uh, equipping yourself better uh, by going through Safe Talk and kind of being aware of of how to talk through some of these issues with somebody who's having these thoughts, whether it be reaching out and finding who your EOSC 
uh, providers are on your ship and just using those peer-to-peer networks continually to live life fully, I think that's going to go a long way um, to preventing uh, some of these issues before they, they kind of bubble up. So uh, living life fully, it's it's an all-hands effort and everyone can do it. And so I that's why I encourage people, just everyone to, to pitch in and uh, and do what they can. I'd say we're going to add one more thing. Yeah, yeah, Chapman, absolutely. Chapman absolutely. always inspires me to think of new things. Um, why wouldn't he? Um, but what you'd mentioned about I agree very much with the mental health not being a injury. It's something you learn every day. And I think uh, one of the things that, again, more controversial that I say is definitely in in the department of mental health, as mental psychiatrists, psychologists, we definitely care about anxiety. We definitely care about depression. We definitely care about PTSD. But I think three things that are not focused on enough, especially in our population, is going to be substance use, ADHD, and also eating disorders. And I'd say for the substance use, and especially for the eating, I think there are very strong parallels with, with mental health in general, in that when people at the, I know the, the rehab treatment facilities I worked at used to, you know, we would talk about that because the, the question that I'd have for them, they'd say, okay, when can I, you know, go back to drinking? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's like saying, when can I stop working out and have a body that I want? When can I stop eating healthily? Well, you can do it now, but it's a eternal vigilance, right? What is the price of liberty? Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty and wanting that life. Eternally vigilant about my mental health. Eternally vigilant understanding. There are definitely things I want to do, but you know that would serve certain values, and there are others. So I think that um, that awareness is happening because, again, going back to the the marine stories, I think most people can at least imagine that marines during certain parts of the year have to roll up their sleeves they have no choice about it and that's a very big deal to them uh, how good a human being you are apparently is 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 reflected in how tight your folds are and going back to how do i convince the gunnies to do it and when they come in ambivalent and not really sure they want to do something i would say oh my gosh gunny think about your you know lance corporal over there if you're private your lance corporal came by and his sleeves were jacked up that's what you guys care about and you were to say, what's wrong with your sleeves? And you were, and he was to tell you, well, Gunny, yeah, I know that they suck, but I wanted to do it on my own. I didn't want to ask my corporal for help. I didn't want to seem weak. Or I thought I was going to be called an idiot. I said, your head would explode if someone <laughs> said that. And it is very much the same thing. Uh, and I guess going back to your original point with your supervisor, most commanding officers I know, because uh, I've talked to a lot of them, do not care if you are on to loft. They do not care if you go to therapy. They care about you going to work and doing your job. And if you need to be on Zoloft to do that, great. If you need to have therapy once a week, great. That is fine. That is kind of what they care about. And I think that's important because I think a lot of people who are on the fence are worried about, oh my God, my command's gonna care if I, no, they don't care for mental health. What they do care about is if because you don't get help or treatment, if you know there's a problem and the problem perpetuates, that's not helping anybody, your spouse may care, but I think at some point when they see the benefits of, oh my gosh, he's a, he or she's much nicer, he or she's much more calm, uh, your kids will appreciate it. Oh my gosh, dad's not yelling as much, mom's not as mean. Um, I think if you, you know, there's so many ways to think about it, like when they see the benefits of it, I think that's probably the best way of, of getting people to understand and just letting them know, you know what, you're not marrying medication, you're not marrying therapy. If you don't like it, you can always stop it but you might as well make that position, that decision from a position of strength. I know what this is like, I've been through it, and no, I don't need it, I'm okay without it, that's fine. Rather than a position of weakness, of I don't know what it's like, I'm scared of it, so I'm not even gonna address it, I'm just gonna ignore the problem. Okay. Well, one other thing that I will say though is thank you so much um, 
I've seen at least in uh, a lot more interaction, like kind of like what, what Doc was saying about silos, I see a lot more efforts to break those silos down and um, in, in just recent months and years. And so I uh, really appreciate that because it will take a team effort to, to address this uh, from everyone, not just us as, as caregivers, but uh, us with the commands and, and with all our sailors too. So um, it's a community problem. It's gonna take a community solution. And we're, because uh, we have someone in this in this seat now as director of psychological health, I think it's really helped kind of uh, make it more of a team effort. So I really appreciate all that effort, Doc, thanks. Thank you, yeah, hopefully we have not just the synergy and teamwork, but also synergy for the community's own well-being mm-hmm. yeah. in that all members of the community will benefit mm-hmm. as people. Yeah. Okay. I recognize that most people, they they got their own stuff going on. They just want you to be okay. Sure. Most chain of commands do. Um, and for us, we have confidentiality. CHAPS has confidentiality. Our confidentiality may be limited, but we do have confidentiality. You get to choose who's part of your treatment team. Um, we cannot spread your business all over the place. Um, so I think that plays into the fear uh, aspect as well, because I think people get afraid and be like, well, if I talk to this person and I see you out and you're part of the command as well, um, or I see you out in town, like there's a possibility my business might be spread all over the place, but for mental health and for chaplains as well, that's that's not our position. We are here to make it a safe space so people can come and have an outlet to come and feel safe. Well, thank you all for coming and I really do appreciate it. If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please reach out to these 24-hour resources. The duty chaplain line is 080-5016-6836. The duty sapper victim advocate is 090-8046-5783. Sexual assault response coordinator is 080-8409-8610. Military one source is 1-800-342-9647. The suicide prevention line is 1-800-273-8255. Press 1. Suicide prevention is www.suicide.navy.mil. The Veterans Crisis Line is www.veteranscrisisline.net.